Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. G'day and welcome to the Farm's Vice Podcast with your host, Jack Creswell. Whether you farm it, service it, or just love it, this podcast is for you. We'll bring you the techniques and technologies you can implement into your day straight from the leaders and innovators themselves. Spread the Farm's Vice so that we can reach more farmers right across Australia. Follow us on all of your socials at Farm's Vice and let's get into this episode. To open up this episode, I'll go off what is carbon farming on Climate Revive. Carbon farming refers to a change of environmental, agricultural or business management in relation to vegetation, fire, soil, livestock or marine environments that aim to increase storage of carbon in our landscapes and oceans or to avoid the release of greenhouse emissions. So that's a little intro into what we'll be talking today with the podcast. Corey Hancock from Climate Revive. He's got quite the experience within mining industry as well and is also bringing that across into agriculture to actually make and look for profitable outcomes for farmers and also aligning that rightly with sustainability moving forward with carbon credits all a little bit up in the air for farmers out there and how that can actually work and especially for those larger stations up north or out west that might be looking to improve their vegetation, but also to make something of that vegetation and become a part of the carbon farming story. This might be a possibility for you, but we'll see what happens throughout this episode. So let's get into it. Well, Corey, welcome to the Farms Vice podcast. We're ready to roll into your experiences. But before we do get down to agribusiness, tell us a little bit about yourself, your connection and how you got into the role you are in today in agriculture. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jack. And I've been looking through your TikTok and Instagram and everything, and and you're doing bloody wonderful stuff there, mate. You're educating educating not only me, but everyone. So well done for that. Yeah, I guess to to give a a bit of a background of me, I come from a 30,000-acre cattle station in, in central Queensland, and it's near Carnarvon Gorge, if you know where that is. And I sort of 
was homeschooled for, for primary school and I spent a lot of time in the creek as a kid. You know, we, we'd finish school, uh, you know, around lunchtime and, and I'd go down and spend a lot of time either on a horse, um, exploring or a lot of time watching birds in the creek. So, and I never sort of uh, made, you know, a hidey hole, a, a camouflage den to hide myself from the wildlife that came down to interact at, at the waterhole. I would always put myself right at the water's edge so that they had to interact with me. So from a young age, I was really interested in that interaction between nature and people. And I guess my, my father taught me a lot about that with cattle grazing and how we can manage the land more sustainably, etc. I remember vividly as a kid going through, you know, a five or six year drought, nothing like the droughts that we have been going through of recent times, but it, it was, sorry, that's my dog. Going around. It's a little apartment dog at the moment, a cattle dog. She needs to chase some sheep. Uh, anyway, yeah, I, I sort of remember this drought that wasn't quite as vivid as the ones in previous times, but it was enough that the wildlife stopped coming to the waterholes. And at the peak of that drought, I remember my father getting a phone call at uh, at four o'clock in the morning from the from the neighbours and we were quite close with these neighbours they had a daughter that was really close to my age we spent a lot of time with them and it was his wife that we called and she basically couldn't talk she just like you you have to come here and the, the father had shot himself in in the middle of the paddock with with no explanation and it was directly related to the drought in the sense that they had gone through some hardships and financial hardships and he had decided that his family was better off without him which is of course not the case but I that really rung true to me in the sense that we whatever we do to nature or whatever happens in nature happens to ourselves and so that natural interest in me led to uh, going to University of Sunshine Coast and uh, studying environmental science and environmental planning I minored in climate change science and psychology as a as an extra minor and then i went into industry uh, i'm a 10 to 12 year professional environmental professional now across a range of different industries mining uh heavy resource and transport uh, agriculture and um, a bit in carbon farming as well which what i'm in full time now i start up my own business in in carbon farming which is a form of regeneration and we trade the carbon credits on, on the market for a profit so that, that's that's what I do. That's a bit of my background and why I do what I do and why I'm passionate about agriculture and um, the world that we're heading into today. Yeah, I think a lot of us in agriculture have those little experiences. We're pretty similar. I went to, um, I went to, I was at home school with my mum as my teacher, with my brother, the only other classmate in the school. Um, quite a cool sort of upbringing, I, I think it was. I didn't go all the way through just a year three, I think. Um, but it was a great way to sort of see and be a bit closer to the, the land that we worked on, where we were out at Wilkenya um, as a kid, getting to know what's happening. I'd imagine some of the obstacles for you, did you have crocodiles where you grew up or no? No, no, it's near Roma. So we, we didn't we didn't get that far, but, um, luckily. But there, we, we had a lot of um, Aboriginal rock art. Yeah. And... Uh, my dad was mates with Graham Walsh, who at the time was Australia's greatest rock art expert. And he had a theory that the, the left hand painted on the sandstone wall 
was a symbol for giving power back to the earth. Um, and, and the right hand was for receiving power. So it was often associated around burials, right? Like the, they would um, bury the body back into the earth and that was giving the power back to the earth in exchange for food and materials. And in my studies, like in every indigenous culture around the world, they have a similar concept, like the Lion King circle of life, where it's, it's about giving back. It's about... Um, ensuring the longevity of the land or the sustainability of the land, we have to make sure that we look after it so that it can keep on giving to us. And so I've carried that concept into, um, into my career, I guess. I'm very passionate about Indigenous philosophy and, and incorporating Indigenous principles like that one into environmental and agricultural management. So I guess I think that's yeah. probably the strongest thing that I've taken away from living on the, on the property as, as a kid, yeah. But I think if you like in the agricultural community or whatever on farm are looking to sort of maybe go back to what they've done traditionally to their land to regenerate, give back to the land a bit more and just to go back to the traditional techniques. But before we get down to what sort of principles it all is, talk to me about what climate revival is as the business and what was the tipping point for you to go, this is really needed within Australian agriculture and especially you're working within Queensland, maybe up in the Gulf area there and how that's working out at the moment yeah so I, I guess i uh coming from that heavy resource industry and and working at, at as a as a leader and um in in that environment sort of field i, I felt that it was necessary having a bit of experience in carbon farming previously and for those of you that don't know there's only two solutions to, to climate change really it's renewable energy we need to avoid emitting the amount of carbon dioxide that we are currently in the atmosphere and then we need to actually reverse mine that carbon dioxide out the only way to do that is through a series of different regeneration methodologies that aim to transition or, or speed up that reverse mining process Carbon dioxide is well needed for nature and it gets converted to carbon in our forests, our oceans and our soils. There's there's different agricultural methods primarily that we can use to, to do that. And that's where carbon farming comes in. Yeah. So when you regenerate uh, nature, the forests and the oceans and the soils using these different methodologies, predominantly through agricultural methods, you can accrue that carbon or calculate the amount of carbon that is drawn down or sequestered from the atmosphere. And you can trade those as carbon credits on the, on the market for a profit or a supplementary income. So that's where my business comes in. I thought that, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of carbon providers out there and they're very, very good technically. I thought that there was a bit of a gap in that industry at the moment in terms of agricultural knowledge and agriculture background. really on carbon and not the agricultural business or um, uh, model or their overall goals. It, it tends to sort of fit in with the methodologies and and everything that comes with that, the compliance stuff. I thought there was an, a need to really understand where agriculture is at, where the landowners are at, and then bring them along on this regenerative carbon journey, you know, fit in with their goals. Because if a carbon project done right can actually work well um, in with an overall agriculture or, or landowner business plan. So I started up Climate Revive 
uh, and I've been going six to nine months now. I have been working up in North Queensland in the in the Gulf of Carpentaria primarily. I'm looking to spread out a little bit now across South Australia, Western Australia, primarily on those those big cattle stations. I'm also contracted to do blue carbon work, which is the restoration of mangroves and wetlands, etc., along the Great Barrier Reef catchment. So that's been interesting work, but uh, the main methodology that I'm working in at the moment is is uh, the regeneration of vegetation. So using applying sort of regenerative agriculture, newness or additionality methods, they call them, to cattle stations, such as extra fences, extra watering points that you can put in over a period of time, and then allows that vegetation to not be suppressed anymore and to grow into full forest potential. With that, there's all these added extra benefits, such as um, biodiversity co-benefits that you can trade for a higher premium carbon credit price. There's extra agricultural productivity benefit if you can get the soil carbon going, et cetera. Um, you can manage fire better. There's all these sort of extra benefits along the way that you, that you can sort of either add to that carbon pool, that carbon biodiversity pool revenue, or uh, it adds to your own agricultural business value overall, you know, improving infrastructure and that kind of thing. And so there's a, because of the, interest at the moment in carbon credits, in emission reduction policies, uh, because of climate change, the, the push for more climate change, agriculture has been slammed for so long as part of the, the climate problem. They're, they're the ones that are, that are the, the, main, uh, the main driver of climate change, basically. And, and for a long time, I mean, that's, that's definitely it has been the case. I mean, that they have been uh, a primary emitter, a carbon emission emitter. So, but in terms of uh, industries that can solve this, agriculture is the only industry in the world that has the ability to draw that carbon dioxide back down and store it through those regeneration processes. So we're, we're sort of going, I feel like we're going about this the wrong way. We're tending to blame farmers and blame landholders, blame agriculture for these issues. Whereas we need to absolutely get them on board because they are the solution. There isn't anyone else in the world that can do this. There isn't any industry in the world that can achieve this. So I thought I, I saw an opportunity to tell a different story, one of, um, of hope and to use uh, or, or to um, not educate, but bridge the gap between businesses and uh, food produce and the carbon industry really is that, you know, that we need to all work together in order to coordinate a plan that works for, for all of us. So I guess it's been a, there's been a lot of challenges along the way in that, um, especially up in that northern country I'm, I'm not very familiar with it uh there's there's a lot of risk up there with uh fire and droughts and floods and, and all kinds of stuff that these guys go through but the carbon project i feel longer term will help diversify their portfolio and their income so that when these more extreme droughts and floods and, and fires do come that they have a carbon income coming off the side so I feel like that can safeguard their future. So I feel like, yeah, I feel like carbon and, and environmental sort of initiatives and, and grants and schemes that are going on at the moment are only going to add to agriculture in the end as a, as a, to diversify 
and to help their overall portfolio in the face of challenges like ex the extreme weather patterns that we're seeing across the, the world right now. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, probably the number one topic currently that farmers are talking about climate change and then shifting into how can we utilize carbon um, for profitability, sustainability, um, and correlating the two together further afield. And I think the interesting part is these, these larger scale properties, whether they're farmed and also the grazing ones up in Queensland, WA, South Australia, Western New South Wales, NT as well, um, and how carbon credits and everything sort of work with them because they're not managing every square centimeter like a farming, they're going through cropping it each year. Um, but this regenerative vegetation and how it's sort of working out for Queensland currently for yourself, are they locking these sort of parts off or is it actually working in with their cattle enterprise so they can run cattle alongside having this return um, on carbon credits? Is that how it's working or what it will pan out to be? Yeah, I hate that word lock up because that is absolutely what we what what we want to avoid. I think that word has sort of come from a lot of the carbon projects in that Mulga country, yeah. where primarily that Mulga country, it's easier to manage. And I definitely don't want to discredit any of those people out there because I've travelled all that country from Cobar to to Winton, and I know the challenges that they go through. I implement a lot of those carbon projects um, through that country, so. I'm familiar with it, but uh, I, I think in terms of, you know, you look at a system like up in North Queensland, up in the Gulf there versus the Mulga country. Mulga country doesn't have a lot of fire. You don't, it, there's not much fire risk. Um, it grows. It's a pretty hardy tree. You know, it grows. It, it doesn't require a hell of a lot of management to make that vegetation grow, basically. Whereas there's a lot of different things that you have to do to ensure that vegetation is safe through a 25-year period um, up in North Queensland. So a lot of people uh, were, were just um, locking up their country with a carbon project and walking away, you know, and I think there were a lot of complaints there. I don't know the truth in all of this, um, but I, I know that there were a lot of um, there was a lot of blaming going on about the carbon industry, saying that it was getting rid of agriculture. They had just gone through some huge droughts out that way, yeah. so I mean that that to start with was quietening towns off to begin with. So there were multiple different factors. Carbon farming may have been one of those factors in that lock it up type approach, but it's definitely not the case up in North Queensland. Um, we, it absolutely has to be managed. The carbon project is not a lock it up and leave it type thing. It, it, whatever methods you propose has to work in with your business. So say if it's um, extra watering points, extra uh, fences, that whatever they want to do on their property, we can propose something and we can work towards that. And you you graze your cattle within that period. Now, my goal in the carbon industry is to actually start increasing your cattle numbers across the carbon project. Now, that's not a methodology that's encouraged in the, in the carbon industry, but it's one that is a viable one, just for the fact that you're putting in more watering points, you're putting in more fences, you're implementing regenerative or um, planned grazing type methods which means resting paddocks and then moving them to this paddock and stuff so the country gets a better rest you're spreading that grazing pressure out over a longer period of time instead of these set stocking rates that are just smashing paddocks 
and you smash one paddock and then you go to the next and you smash that paddock. It's not sustainable. And you can't, and, and cattle around watering points, particularly up in that area, they'll only go two to three kilometres around a, a watering point. So they only smash that area around that particular watering point. If you make another watering point up here, another one up there, it sort of can spread that grazing pressure. You're utilising more of your land more effectively with yeah. the carbon project. So you should, in essence, you should be able to actually increase your cattle numbers, not decrease like what they've proposed in the Mulga country. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that decreasing your cattle numbers, especially in that Mulga country, doesn't make an ounce of difference in the end because you've still got a thousand kangaroos hitting it. You've got feral goats, you got sheep. So the plant is getting hit at all different levels. So it's getting suppressed anyway, even if you do take livestock numbers off the place. So that methodology that was proposed out there wasn't working too well. We need to look at, at new methodologies that can that can work into the future. I don't think it's a case of decreasing cattle numbers. I think it's a case of sort of um, increasing if possible, but what whatever works in with the country, right? And, and this is what I sort of learned in terms of indigenous philosophies or indigenous principles is that they had 300 clans working across Australia at one point. They had one, uh, an, uh, an Aboriginal law, like a universal sort of law that they called it, which is a bunch of economic, social and environmental principles that worked across the country. Now, these messages were communicated through a very complex or um, trade lengthened um, trade route system. There were stories and knowledge swapped and these Aboriginal law principles swapped. So that's how they communicated those messages to make sure that the, the law principles stayed the same. Some of those law principles were stuff like um, don't take more than what you need. Um, we, we, we value land and we tell stories around these particular things and there's consequences if you don't do it this way, et cetera, et cetera. So, but, so those principles were universal. But the, because they operated, their clans were operating within ecological niches, basically, like a desert compared to a rainforest. The methods in a desert their environmental management methods in the desert compared to a rainforest were completely different. And that is the same or should be the same um, for each carbon project. So the principles should remain the same of a carbon project or an agricultural business, but the methods will differ depending on the ecological niche you're in and the type of, type of um, species that you've got, the type of pastures, the, the type of business goals that you have, um, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's an important point to make is that no one project will be the same, uh, especially in terms of um, regenerative agriculture. The buzzword that's going on at the, at the moment and has been for the last few years, I mean, those principles are pretty clear. There's there's five regeneration principles. There's the solar plant cycle, which is based on increasing, maximizing the photosynthesis process. There's the water cycle, which is um, if you increase that solar plant cycle and the carbon cycle, you'll hold more water in your soils and your plants that leads to drought resilience. There's the nutrient cycle. So if you manage your cattle and livestock into crops or in grazing schemes more effectively, you actually trample those plants back in and increase those microbes through dung beetles, et cetera, et cetera, in the soil. And then there's diversity. You know, you want to make sure that you have a number of different um, diverse plant species, either in grazing or cropping schemes, 
you know, to, um, the, these monocultures aren't working anymore. They're sort of taking too much out of, of, of the land. And then the fifth principle is one that was introduced by Charles Massey, which is probably the most important, is the human social element. It, it's more about the psychological aspect behind this. We need to um, ask ourselves better questions, basically. It is like, how do we get less inputs into land meaning more less fertilizers less chemicals whilst getting a maximum output a longer term output like how how do we reduce what we're doing currently and get the same uh, and get the same output or, or just the same and it's about looking at things not so conventionally and not, not so industrially um, and looking at a more regenerative one like how can we work with nature not against it kind of thing so it, it's um there's those principles remain the same but the the methods within those principles will will vastly differ and i think that's where people go a bit wrong with it too is that they argue that rotational grazing or uh things don't work these regenerative schemes don't work and they'll send you broke i mean well we have to sort of ask ourselves better questions is it's like what if you're saying that rotational grazing or cell grazing doesn't work or um, integrating livestock into cropping schemes doesn't work or you, or you have to use chemicals and fertilizers. It's like, well, what did you do specifically? What outcome were you looking for? You need to ask yourself the question. It's like, were you looking for more pasture species? Were you looking to improve your, your cattle weight gain? Were you looking to increase your cattle numbers? Like what specifically do you think didn't work? And I, and I guarantee that mo the majority of the time, it'll always come down to management methods. Like, did you leave your cattle on there a week too long? Because if you left your cattle on there, on the on the product, property, on, on that particular paddock a week too long, then they would, they may have eaten that grass down to a point where like it's called an ecological trigger is where that plant can't photosynthesize or re regenerate enough. And, and one good rule to use is the one third plant plant um, sort of rule. It's like one third gets trampled back into the ground, one third gets eaten, and then one third gets left to have enough leaf matter to regenerate back up. Um, so if we're, we're not sort of doing these things, and it, it can be very, very like, it needs to be active in the field. The best person that, that I've seen at this is um, a guy named Alastair McClymont. I don't know if you've heard of him. I've heard that name thrown around, yeah. He, he's one of the big cattlemen and um, he's up in that Richmond area. I spent six hours with him going around on his block and uh, he sort of was saying that he doesn't believe in the regenerative sort of movement and, and rotational grazing and the rest of it. But it, it, I don't know if if he uh, would like me to, to say this on air, but um, he's actually doing it, really. I mean, he, he was out there, like he's high energy. He's a high energy, really switched on fella but he was moving cattle around as we spoke and making decisions on the fly so we're going along this paddock right and there's you know 40 head of cattle around this dam and he goes oh oh you know i flew over here there's not much grass over there and they're eating it out a bit quick i'm just gonna let this gate open and we'll chase them through so we chase the cattle through on the go to the next paddock you know and he's saying that he doesn't believe in regenerative grazing or, or rotational stuff but he's actually doing it and that that's People think that it's sort of some sort of set thing. Like you spend, you you use your cattle 
put them for two weeks on this paddock and then they have to move on to the next paddock within that two week sort of um, time period. But that's not the case, right? It's, it's like you have to be actively monitoring your grass and and predicting is like how much rain have you got coming up yep. and predicting your, your biomass in, in the future kind of thing. So he was sort of actively doing that on the run. That was probably one of the best management methods that, that I'd seen for, for a while. So it's more about that. It's more about being an active manager and we have to we have to have farmers or landowners that know the land better than I could ever could because they know their own land, they're out there every day, um, managing this constantly. And the carbon projects are just supply, like um, give them a supplementary income to be able to do the right thing, I guess, and keep on going in, in that in that way. I think a lot of the farmers, um, I don't know, up, up north, they, they wouldn't like being called farmers. Um, I never actually liked the word called um, anyway, but moving on, I don't think farmers like to be attached to these new hot sort of buzzwords, regenerative agriculture. I think there is a lot of farmers out there that are actually doing regenerative practices, but they're not actually saying, okay, we've undertaken this regenerative project. They're actually, they're increasing their water points, reducing the stress levels on highly focused sort of areas for their livestock and that land around that sort of area with a few Ks can actually come back a little bit, get some vegetation up and offer more with these improved watering points and the management practices of our grass. But it is being active out in your paddock, no matter how big your paddock is, if it's half a million acres or half a thousand acres, just managing what it is at that time of day, um, your grass levels, leaving that third so that you can regenerate um, and, photosynthesize back into it and I don't know however long your grass is in the next paddock is how it determines how long they will be back this paddock what's the reception been in the last 12 months for yourself from these larger property owners station owners being into these buzzwords of carbon are they adjusting to the sort of new ways that are coming along and also they're probably quite open to these economic drivers of offsetting these hard years of drought, these huge floods, these one one in 100 year floods that we seem to get every 10 years at the moment. How's that been for you? Yeah, no, uh, good questions. Uh, firstly, I totally agree with you. Um, there are some people that aren't receptive, receptive at all to these buzzwords, whereas they probably actually are doing most of it or, or want to do most of it in the future. People just don't like labels. Yep. Don't like calling it climate change. Um, don't like calling it regenerative agriculture. I don't want nothing, anything to do with that, you know, um, but they're doing it anyway. It's just about the definition that you, you sort of um, apply to it. So you just, a, a lot of these farmers are doing the right thing. They really are. This is about getting paid to do the right thing and to ensure that the process is followed and um, um, to have a, that supplementary income. I, I think now there is a uh, a genuine interest in it because of the massive push that's happening at the moment, public push, but also industry push. You know, uh, Meat Livestock Australia have set that 2030 carbon neutral target. Um, there's a there's a big push against that vegan vegetarian sort of narrative that that's being played at the moment. I think a lot of landowners and 
the agricultural industry in general is a bit fired up about that. I mean, I've, I've got no problem with it. I take a very balanced view with it. We don't need to talk about that now, but you know, we, we need, we need, we need both diets is, is my view. Um, but I think that the, the, the passion and the, and the, the fired up sort of attitude that we're firing, finding at the moment is great because that's like, well, we are doing the right thing, you know, like it's coming back and saying, we're doing this, this and that. Like, okay, well, let's actually regulate that with a proper with a proper project, you know, with these environmental compliance sort of schemes over the, over the top of it so that we can prove that up. Because it, it is about proving it up. It, it's not about greenwashing. Not everyone can say that they're regenerative because they just simply probably aren't doing everything that you should be doing. Um, but they could be. Uh, if they wanted to so it it really is about um about getting more people on board now the 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 energy i feel is there the interest is there like I, i've talked to a, a lot of those different landholders in that area now from from um uh Karumba right on the gulf there right down to to richmond and hewenden and, and across up to that eltheridge shire so I've, uh, I've talked to like a range of different people in that North Queensland area and the, the feeling is all the same. They know it's coming yeah. um, and they're sort of starting to just try and understand that this is a quite a complex industry. There's a lot of complex sort of issues that people want to know more about, like are these offsets or the carbon credits just allowing polluters to keep on polluting? That's not true either. There's safeguard mechanisms that don't allow that stuff to happen. So you sort of have to take them through on the journey, I guess. Uh, and it is quite a complex one. Some people can have sort of the the mindset or the 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 idea that, um, and they go in and that's just what they think. And you can't necessarily change those people. And I don't want to either. I don't want to spend time with that. I, I want to spend time with the people that actually want to learn and keep on educating. Like if it... If your system is working for you, there's no need to do a carbon project. But if you want to improve your agricultural productivity as well as your ecological health, as well as be able to market that, as well as be able to prove that you're doing the right thing, as well as get a supplementary income, then that's when the carbon project's for you. You know, that's when you need to start looking into these schemes. But if if you're doing everything that you ever wanted to do and it's working for you then then why do something new you know like you don't necessarily need to do this it's just a good thing to do i just really knowing both agriculture and environment i can't i see it as a win-win-win here all the way i don't and a lot of people say that they're like oh it's too good to be true well like going back to what i said before agriculture has been blamed for climate change for environmental land degradation issues for a long time now. Well, now finally people have realised that they are the solution. Farmers, landholders, they are the solution here. And so finally they're getting recognised for it and finally there's a, um, a proper policy, a proper framework in place that allows them to get paid for it. Because the other thing that we sort of need to clarify too is that going from that conventional or traditional methods into ones that are more regenerative, there is a bit of a transition period there. There's like two to two to three or four years is where, you know, you, you stop, you start reducing your fertilizers and your chemicals and stuff and, and the output won't be as strong. It's the same with, with most carbon projects is that, you know, there'll be a two to three year lag period there 
where you need to stop suppressing your vegetation um, and those credits will start rolling in after that, that period. So there won't be income you know, for about a two year period and then you start getting your credits in. And it's, it's the longer term game that really helps. It's their 25 to 100 year projects. So we're looking for that benefit, that longer term benefit, the longer term um, outcomes, agricultural and ecological outcomes of the property that really safeguard um, your, your land resilience or safeguard your, your business, but then um, really help with ecological and drought resilience for those extreme weather events that are happening more often now, whether or not you believe it's it's man-made or not, it doesn't make a difference. It's happening and we need to safeguard our industry, agriculture uh, against it. This is one of the ways that that you can do that is with a carbon project, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. In, in 2022, we've another key buzzword of data and how we're measuring everything within Australian agriculture and leading into carbon um, without sort of baselining or even having those pre sort of figures on farm um, farmers actually won't be able to take advantage of this later on in the piece. And as we know, you said just then it can take up to three years to actually get something out of it and start to actually see these trends. But I think overall, even just to baseline your farm, it can be quite an important KPI just to see how your operations running in with your own environment are you actually improving your soils overall? Um, just utilizing it as a KPI in the end, I think people are a bit confused, a bit worried about selling their accus onto the carbon market. Um, they don't want to offset these corporate companies. These corporates should take some accountability themselves instead of offsetting it. Um, there's a lot of sort of confusion out there, but what sort of structures are you putting in place currently for these sort of big pastoral stations um, just like three sort of levels that they go through in order to be able to have that decision at the end. Okay, we we will look at putting this project going ahead and actually sort of getting some revenue off the back of it, however that sort of may be, selling one credit to 100,000, however it works. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the first thing is that there's no risk on the land either, owner. Um we do all the pre-feasibility assessments at no cost to landowner, which is just quite an expensive process. We do all the reporting, all the ecological reporting, everything that needs to, all the um, indigenous negotiation, all the uh, compliance reports and auditing. We, we do it all for them all the way through. So there's no upfront cost that we take a percentage. Yeah, that's the first step is that we need to do preliminary assessments and due diligence on the project to make sure that it will actually work. So a lot of people are trying to cut out the carbon provider now. I mean, that may be able to happen in the future when you be able to get various contracts in for um, cheaper price or whatever. It's not possible at the moment because like where I've built a company that's all encompassing of ecologists, of auditors, of um you know the, the the compliance advisors and the the carbon technical advisors so we've sort of got that whole package there that we can just deliver to them straight away at no cost to them except when we get our carbon credits in our pocket kind of thing we just take a percentage of, of that each year and we can trade it you need a financial um, service license to trade the credits on the market uh, we, we do all of that 
um, for them. So that's the first thing, first step is that there's no risk upfront to them. So even if you if you don't get the credits in your pocket kind of thing, there's no cost to them. It, it doesn't come back on them unless you have that agreement in place. But we do it at a risk reward type approach as we, we, we know that the credits um, are becoming increasingly more valuable. Now, that's another good point is that the carbon credit price has fluctuated with the change in government um, and and various things that the Liberal government did, and Donald Trump and stuff, you know, various things just made it fluctuate up and down. So you can safeguard against that now too. You can sort of contract to a client, say um, Coca-Cola or Rio Tinto or whoever wants to buy the the carbon credits. You can you can lock them in for a period of time and say we want them locked in at forty dollars a carbon credit. So it it stops that fluctuation sort of risk as well. Um, there's different things that you can do with fire risk, like if a fire or a drought takes out, out the um, uh, vegetation, you can safeguard against that too, uh, being that you have to regenerate that area back up to where it was if you've done all the right things. If you put the proper management plan in place and it's not negligence on your behalf, then all your, you don't have to pay back credits, you just have to regenerate it back up to that area that was before, like a, a high-level watermark. There's there's those type of things that you can do to mitigate that risk. Um, other than that, it, it's not a huge risk to the landowner. That obviously they they have to put in the more the watering points and the, the extra fences at their cost, but they can do that over the life of the project. That's that goes in your project plan. So once you get the carbon credit income, you can go and put that fence in, put that extra dam in, etc. It actually improves the value of your property overall if you're making those infrastructural sort of changes. Obviously, um, I really don't see that much risk. There's heaps of different things that you can do now. Um, you can add. There's an integrated land management method coming out next year, which means at the moment you can only choose one carbon methodology, whether it be fire or vegetation or soil, you only can go with one. But the integrated land management method means you can sort of layer them. You can do fire and soil and, and vegetation all at the same time. You can stack them onto, onto one, one another. Uh, there's different things that you can do now to sort of start adding to your carbon credit pool. Say you have, you know, 20, 30,000 head of cattle, but you just want to do the vegetation project well you can you can do the beef herd methodology as well um, as well as soil as well as something else so that those extra carbon credits that you accrue can keep on adding to that pool and you just divvy up the the credits at, at the end and there's also you know the carbon biodiversity co-benefit that you can do that that we do at, at no extra cost is, is where you, you know you get those if there's a specific um, bird species or threatened ecosystem on your on your block, then you can charge a premium carbon credit if you're looking after that ecosystem. Um, there's heaps of those sort of things that you can do to safeguard safeguard it. I don't see this industry going away anytime soon. I I think that people should really start to do their research now. And, and start to look at carbon providers that can provide that agricultural sort of advice as well and, and the carbon technical advice moving forward because it, the carbon credit price is going to skyrocket. It, it already has in Europe that we're at, you know, where we are at at the moment, 30 or $40 a, a tonne a, a couple of, two or three years ago. They're sort of soaring um, well above 150 now, uh, uh, um, a credit. It's just the significant cash in it because we're always going to need 
uh, offsets, carbon offsets, uh, which is where the, the main driver comes from. Everyone's trying to go to carbon neutral. I mean, there's only so much renewable energy we can we can have. And there's, you know, for the bigger corporations like Rio Tinto, like BHP, uh, they can't they can't go completely renewable. They're always going to have some emissions to offset and offsetting means they need to buy carbon credits. The only ones that can provide those carbon credits are the landowners, are the farmers. So that's why um, it, they're so crucial and they will become increasingly crucial. Agriculture will become increasingly crucial in the future because they're the, they really are the only ones that can sort of offset the amount of carbon that we need to to keep on going like the we, we've, we're stuck in this sort of conveyor loop at the moment um with with our lifestyles that we all have um we all drive cars you know we, we all need fuel and oil which emits carbon in the atmosphere we need to balance that back out we need to start reversing it back out we, the only industry in the world that can do this is, is carbon farming and then the only industry that can provide that solution is agriculture so this isn't going away I think people really need to start doing their research in, into it now if, if they haven't already and see if it could benefit them in any way, see what their business could uh, could utilise in this carbon space um, now and into the into the future. Yeah, 100%. And I think over the many years, a couple hundred years, Australian agriculture has been in operation. We actually have been um, sequestering carbon, but I think now in this in this era where the king of measuring everything down to the T data, how that's feeding in and also how we can sort of offset that um, with the carbon credits as well. So on the other side of that marketplace, there's plenty of activity from companies um, not begging, but looking for ways that they can offset their carbon um, it acts like a bit of an auctions plus for carbon. Is that how it's working? It, it it's working a whole different ways at the moment, and it's all all integrating. There's a there's a voluntary market, and then there's the compliance compliance market. So the compliance market is like companies that have to buy, and, and the government that has to buy a certain amount of carbon credits. And then the voluntary market is sort of these companies that are not doing it out of the goodwill, but um, uh, uh, just sort of looking for carbon credit projects to to buy. But those markets are becoming ex, um, increasingly interchangeable. The, the lines are getting blurred between voluntary and compliance. It's, it all seems to be one market at the, at the moment, um, which is driving that price uh, through through the roof kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's um, that type of trading world is complex, and even I don't understand it fully fully yet. But I, I think that the main thing to to understand is that if you find a client that wants to buy your product. Uh, which is the carbon credit and the regeneration project, then you need to lock them in. So if you find Coca-Cola that wants to pay a hundred bucks a carbon credit, then lock them in. And I think the story that we're not telling right at the moment is that is that link, is that people are just buying carbon credits, these corporations are buying carbon credits because they have to and then forgetting about it. It's like, well, why don't we tell that story a little bit better than what we currently are? Like, um, for example, when you buy, when you tick that, Qantas offset box, I mean, that goes into directly into these cattle stations, um, directly into the farmer's pocket. You know, I might take a percentage of that, like a, my my sort of rate is, you know, 15 to 20% of that overall carbon project. So I might take 15% of that, um, of that carbon offset that you that you pay for on the flight. 
the carbon provider, but the rest goes into the landowner's pocket kind of thing. And so we need to sort of start telling that story as everyone thinks that that's just a carbon tax that goes into Qantas's pocket you know, as an extra sort of thing that they, they do. That That's really not the case. And we don't link that to the actual project itself. So if people told that story, if you had that on your Qantas screens when you, you're flying an airplane and you say, oh, yeah, if, if uh, you know, my five bucks that I offset on my flight, it's going into, you know, this station up in, up in the Gulf. And this is, you know, Tom and, and, uh, and, and Carrie who are up, up here and, and they're doing really good things. They're, look at the, look at their regenerative grazing scheme that they've got going. Look at their trees and look at the, the black-throated finch that they're looking after, you know, like that's, that's a good news story. And that's the piece that we're missing at the moment. We're not telling those stories. And no wonder people get uh, like all dramatic about this, about how agriculture is destroying the world. It's because we're not telling the good news story. Like you say, agriculture has been sequestering carbon for a, a long, long time now. Uh, and, you know, we can... Land needs a trigger, right? It's different fire management, different cattle grazing methods, um, management methods can often trigger seed banks in ground. So that's where the trees grow. And trees are huge carbon drawdown, um, uh, carbon carbon pool, carbon um, uh, sink, basically. It's like, we, we're not telling that story. And like you say, yeah, we, we're going to measure it now with the carbon project, but with them, we need to tell the story. And I think, you know, podcasts like this one, um, that, that you're doing is super useful because that is the only way that we're going to be able to convey this message now and, and stop the, the um, I wouldn't say crap, but just stop the misunderstandings that goes on between agriculture and this, this sort of in, environment, especially in the mainstream environment science in academia, is that um, the academic science just isn't coming across to these carbon projects yet because carbon projects are very... Uh, they don't like putting their data across uh, too much and it's what's well, client confidentiality, basically. I think we need to start, I think that's the next step in the carbon industry is we need to start becoming more transparent with our data and so that we can tell these good news stories because they are absolutely sequestering a huge amount of carbon and we need to be able to tell the world that um, so that everyone can feed this industry a little bit more, not only with finances, but with the social aspect as well and empower farmers, landowners to, to take these projects on and encourage them because no one like everyone just gets on the defensive. As soon as you say, well, you're, you're, you're part of the problem, mate. Like I don't want to buy your meat because it's red meat and it's, it's killing the planet. I was like, well, what if we said, well, no, it's not. It's actually helping the planet. It's actually reversing climate change, you know, like, and why don't we empower these people to keep on doing the job that they've always done in in a more regulated and monitored way now? And uh, I think it's, um, we have an incredible opportunity here in front of us with climate change. I know everyone looks at it as a problem and all these droughts and floods are a problem and they absolutely are. And they're, extremely hard times to get through but they also present an incredible opportunity not only for agriculture but humanity in general it's like how we living in urban areas especially myself i live in i live in the gold coast i mean how can i empower you know the people on the land that actually are, are doing the work because they're the ones that that are going to 
in the end be a major part of that solution, that climate environment solution um, of regeneration and revival. And, and I guess that's everything that I've tried to do in my company is, is that I've, I try and bridge like, like what you're doing, I guess, is trying to bridge that gap in industry, I guess, is between, you know, the environment industrial sort of um, world and the agricultural world and like trying to understand where those challenges are where um, do everything right by the compliance books but also let's let's stretch that opportunity let's see what else we need to do i think the carbon industry has has a long way to go um, like a lot of people, like your listeners might might be thinking i think it absolutely has a long way to go but it's absolutely one of the solutions out there at the moment and it is the only one that we have so i think we should get on board with it and um it, it if we look at it in the right way if we ask ourselves better questions um and change our perception a little bit it can absolutely help agriculture become the industry that um we need it to be in the future and, and what i know that um you know a lot of people don't like change we need to see this as an opportunity not just change and we do also need to remember that the change all, all the good changes and all, all the changes that have happened in our life previously i know from my personal experiences at the time it was horrible you know you're going through these changes and you're like I don't, you get a bit grumpy you're like i don't want to change my life was good the way it was but then you realize that you come out at the other side that it it wasn't it's provided an opportunity. It, it helped you progress in in many different ways of your life. You may have met someone that you wouldn't have met otherwise. You may have got a new job opportunity and you may have grown in that way or a good group of friends or whatever it is. It could have might have led to something else. I think we need to embrace that change is that there is an environmental push coming, whether we like it or not. We have to embrace the change and at least look at the the frameworks that are in place right now and the opportunities are available to us. Yeah. I think just going back to telling that story and as for consumers, if we don't give them the story um, of how we are improving and allowing agriculture to be that key driver with 55% of ownership going to farming in Australia, they're going to just make up their own assumptions. Um, we know a fair few of those assumptions already, but if we're not promoting that story, um, like some of the few episodes I've had on carbon just on this podcast have flown off the wall just because it's a hot topic and it's also both consumers, farmers and the services like yourself are all thinking about it and how it's actually going to impact the industry um, right the way through. So it's very exciting just to see where it is now, but where it will be in five to 10 years. Where do you hope it will be in five to 10 years without getting too far ahead of ourselves do you think all sort of farmers will be their baseline anyway, um, whether they sell on the open market as such? Yeah, I, I think that the, the price will make more management methods more viable. So yeah. in, in some areas, you know, fire management isn't viable in other areas soil isn't. But as that price continues to um, rise up, the opportunity will increase uh, at the same time. I also think that that um, the regulators and the carbon providers need to get better at providing agricultural advice. They've been primarily focused on methodology and that methodology has been pretty rigid. You know, I've been in this 
compliance world and, and governed by government uh, uh, regulators for a long time now, Department of Environment Science and Agriculture. And it can be very, there can be a massive gap between what is written on paper in the office and then what actually happens on land. And we're st all learning, right? Like we're, um, the Mulga country is completely different to that North Queensland country, which is completely different to the Daintree rainforest, which is completely different to the Murray-Darling river system, et cetera, et cetera. So like there's all these different things that we have to learn. As long as we set a, a set of principles and we are flexible within those principles, like that, um, the Aboriginal law that I was talking about. If we set a set of principles that everyone's happy with, we operate within those principles um, or apply those principles to these management methods. I think that's where the industry needs to go. We need to get a lot more flexible with our agricultural management systems, especially in terms of regenerative agriculture. I mean, it's pretty well proven now in the scientific community that using cattle uh, or integrating livestock into um, crop systems as well as um, on land can actually reduce fire hazards. It can um, stimulate the ground to uh, um, germinate seed. It can uh, increase your nutrient cycling and hold more water in the soil, which leads to drought resilience, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's pretty well proven now. Um, and that documentary Kiss the Ground sort of is a really good visual demonstration on Netflix of, of that happening. That was just soil. They focused very specifically on soil, that documentary. There's a whole world of regeneration out there and a whole different um, way of doing things. And, and I think like we need to start looking at things a lot differently in that environmental sort of compliance world. And what I mean by that is that uh, not look at cattle or livestock as the problem. We've always had large herbivores from the dinosaurs through to, you know, the bison and the giraffe and elephants and the Australia's megafauna. Um, the theory is, is that the, the large herbivores were used in uh, across the millennia to reduce fire hazard, basically. And that in turn helped regulate the climate and, and introduced nutrient cycling and, and all the rest of it. So, we're sort of looking at those larger animals regulating climate for a, for a long period of time. And everything that I've learned in environmental science says that, says that there is a place in nature and in climate for every single animal or every single species that have, has ever existed. I think it's about looking at things differently now, um, looking at weeds differently is like not... Um, not as you know uh, pests that we need to kill straight away it's like what role do they have in the ecosystem has that ecosystem been disturbed is this the first step of getting the microbes back in the soil and getting that regenerating can we leave that and, and just empower the other diverse native species of plants around that and eventually they take over a lot of its patience um, which is why i said the, the the two to three year sort of leeway there um, from starting from going com from conventional methods into more regenerative, we need to sort of be a little bit patient and and have a different take on things, and the regulation needs to follow that as well. So I really think this is um, the industry in terms of where will it be in five to ten years. It's only going to improve, but um, not only farmers need to not speak up, but they need to um, voice their challenges to 
the carbon providers, um, not the government anymore. The government's not there for, for that particularly. I think we need that middleman. We need agricultural advisors on the ground, um, people like yourself to communicate these messages. I think we, we do it at that mid-range level. Um, we, we help the landowners voice their challenges and then we can lift that um, into that that um, government framework or environmental frameworks to improve those overall frameworks to improve the overall industry so that we can keep on keep on tracking along and regenerate our entire ecosystems not only across Australia but uh, you know across the world and that's when I mean we, we're always going to need agriculture um, uh, in terms of food we have to feed billions of, of people and it's only going to get harder in the future as, as well as we've been saying with the heat waves and, and all the extreme weather events that that's not going away but what what we can do is um, group together not be divisive in in nature uh, educate um, that part of the world or, or that those communities that need education, educate industry and educate, um, and therefore in turn educate the government to improve these systems, um, to make sure, because, you know, just if, I didn't even know, I mean, I come from a candle station, I, I did not know that the amount of lick that gets put out just because there's a lack of protein and phosphorus up in that northern Gulf country. I mean, they're just doing huge rounds and that's a huge uh, cost to landowners. So like all these type of challenges and wet season up there, like whole paddocks get flooded. So all I'm saying is, oh, I'm going along up there uh, and saying, oh, well, let's move the cattle into this paddock, you know, and then this paddock and I say, because it gets flooded this time of the year. Oh, and that paddock gets burnt that time of the year. So they're only left with like a tiny paddock for these cattle in one part of the year and that's what they manage these these farmers are going through huge challenges that unless you go up there and speak to them on the ground you, you really don't know the type of impacts that they go through and, and the challenges that they go through on a year-to-year -year basis we, we have to start bridging that gap a little bit better and i'm just yeah i know i've said it a couple of times but i'm very impressed with the um with everything that you're you're doing on TikTok, especially, I think it's it's bloody brilliant because you you're teaching you're teaching me, and I'm sure you're teaching uh, millions of other Australians uh, and and um, now international. I'm sure it's international reaching. So yeah, it's, it's bloody fantastic. We need more of it, and a lot faster to speed up that transition. I guess. Yeah, I was quite surprised. Like the hashtag Farms Vice on TikTok's nearly 20 million views, like reaches with whatever video that's attached to. And just to see how far that can fly. I haven't done too many carbon little segments in there yet, but I think it's a very exciting space, whichever side of the fence um, you sort of sit on within this carbon market. But I think for you, you've been taking that fence down on this episode and just sort of opening it up, having that open conversation, using traditional techniques, going back to the roots of Australian landscapes and actually working with them, um, but also those economic drivers that farmers can't do without. I think correlating profitability with sustainability is at the heart of this podcast, but also at the heart of what every farmer wants to do. They don't want to rate their land any more into any more than the next farmer. But as you're working with probably the early adopters of this, um, they'll probably reap the most benefits out of it, but also peer-to-peer -peer learning within agriculture is how we all learn annoyingly it's not across an email or across an instant episode 
Um, it's learning off the other farmers from their mistakes. Um, but those making the mistakes are probably learning a lot quicker in the initial stages as those sort of waiting back just to see what's happening. Um, but with the crust of carbon farming, selling credits or whatever, if you're working towards that without selling the credits, your property or farm's probably a lot better off getting back to regenerative sort of practices, putting in those principles that can amalgamate into your own scenario rather than set structures set by the government. Um, but these third parties like yourself are actually making waves in the industry and trying to, you're learning on the go and teaching these farmers who are learning on the go as well. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of this stuff is just common sense, right? You know, just implementing basic principles, slowing water flow, you know, by um, that Alastair McClymont, who's sort of digging these moon-shaped type holes on, on the landscapes to, to hold water when it does rain and that increases the vegetation and stuff and the soil carbon. Um, so everything that you're sort of doing or aiming to do should regenerate land enough to uh, you know, increase pasture to increase their agricultural productivity overall. So everything is sort of common sense, but it's putting a bit of a plan in place, like a longer term plan to, to safeguard against um, not only climate change in the future, but your, your, your financial portfolio as well. So yeah, absolutely agree i think it it can it can work in with your your agricultural business if you let it and it should that the the legislation and the compliance world should become flexible enough over the next couple of years as we improve the industry um, to be able to work in with your business model and what you want to achieve over the the next 10 to 25 years yeah i think those barriers to entry will get stripped back furthermore as we progress through it um, but we'll be kept up to date anyway, and we'll try get a few more of these episodes across just to understand the market, sort of break down different areas. Um, I really enjoy these sort of change, game-changing sort of events. Um, and I think farmers, through a podcast, it's a great way just to get that quick information on the go rather than sitting down and then you sort of get confused sitting down and trying to just read off one piece of information. Um as you know, it's a very the, exciting space. The, the the simplest way to put it, I think, is that uh, that saying, you can't grow money on trees. Well, you can now. <laughs> and that, that's all it is, is we're, we're calculating the amount of carbon that that tree can sequester over a long period of time. That growth on the tree is equal to a dollar figure in the end, and it should be profitable, like you say. I mean, it, it, that, that's what my business motto is, is about, is making the regeneration of nature profitable for agriculture and business. I mean, this is basing now an entire economy on the regeneration of nature, not degeneration. It's sort of flipping that economic model that we've based on. We've always extracted out of the land. Now we're putting it back in and um, and we're turning over uh, or making that profitable at the, at the same time, which just brings it back to that left-hand, right-hand Aboriginal um, theory is, is that this is now an opportunity to give back to the land. Uh, we've taken it from it from so long and, and not, not just agriculture. I'm talking, you know, in general that the human population, we've taken, extracted a lot out. Um, this is the way to give back now and to ensure the longevity of of um, not only the future in agriculture, but uh, the future of humanity, I guess. 
Absolutely. And also, what would be your one piece of finance advice you'd like to pass on to the, the smaller sort of operations? It could be a huge million acre sort of station, but the one two man team, husband and wife, or just one one of them working on the farm to sort of look into this because we wear so many hats. Everyone keeps adding more to farmers. We want to do all this stuff, but we just really don't have the capacity 24 hours a day to study new game changes for on-farm when actually it could quite benefit us if we did have that time. But as you know, we're flat out as it is. We want to be able to do this stuff, but time is the limiting factor. What would that be? Yeah, I mean, I that's my job. I take it away from you. Just say the word, give me a call, I'll assess your block. Um, uh, not only me, I'm not just promoting myself. I mean, there's lots of other carbon providers out there that, that will do the same thing. Um, same same business model, essentially, is that, yeah, you provide these pre-assessments. And we are meant to take that administrative sort of burden off you. You sign a dotted line. Um to sign up for the carbon project if you, if you want to go ahead with the 25-year project. But that's all you do, really. You, you can help us provide the evidence, like what type of grazing management schemes you've done in the past, whatever questions we ask you. It may be a couple of days here and there. Um, but otherwise, we do the whole lot for you. And there is a lot of reporting um, from our side. We have to do management plans and ecological reports and all, all types of things to submit to the government, all types of negotiations. Um, but that that burden, is that's our cut of it once we get the credits in our pocket. That's why we do the work year to year, keep on coming back for our cut, is that it's meant to take a lot of that burden off you. So call a carbon provider, get them to do it for you. You can walk away basically and just say, look, can you just assess my block for me? See if there's any potential, get back to me with the methods that are, and just let me know. And that's that's all there to it. It'll take a carbon provider a couple of weeks to do. And they come back to you with the full report and saying, you can do this, this, and this. And what would you like to do? And and maybe if you don't want to go ahead with it now, if you get that assessment done, don't want to go ahead with it now for some reason, then uh, as long as the opportunity is there, still there, and your project is still eligible in a couple of years, and you have to make sure you check that out, but um, the opportunity might arise in another couple of years. So like what I'm saying is I don't think this is going away anytime soon. Take your time. Don't rush it. Uh, really think through. But you need to get the proper advice. Carbon providers are probably the best advice providers out there. Um, a lot of agronomists and um, agribusiness people, they're, they're not sort of across this industry as much yet. Uh, so go to another carbon provider. If you don't like what one person is telling you, go to another. It's like a doctor, right? It's like you wouldn't just get one reference. You'd go to another doctor. So don't go to people that don't know about the industry. Go to the same person or, or yeah you know what i mean like it's comparing apples with apples not apples with oranges kind of thing because that's the worst thing that people can do by the way is go to the pub and talk about it at the pub because you're going to get a million different rumors and none of them most likely well not the ones that i've heard anyway are true uh so it's better to get proper advice from um from a carbon expert uh, rather than rather than the pub which i know a lot of people like to do it's very tempting but that's my best advice: is don't do it. Go, go and get, go and get the advice and um, from the professionals. Yeah, great piece of farm advice there, and also leads into the question of how can we actually reach out to you, Corey, and Climate Revival, and actually take this initial step if 
we want to as farmers, um, no matter sort of how small our operation is to the larger scaled ones. How is that done? Yeah, yeah, I guess um, you can contact me on my website uh, or our website. So it's www.climaterevive.com uh, and Climate Revive, just C-L-I-M-A-T-E, revive, R-E-V-I-V-E.com. And uh, or on my mobile, straight up zero four two nine six nine five six zero nine. And yeah, I'm I'm available. I'm I'm on LinkedIn as well. That's how you you got me. I'm also on Instagram at uh, uh, Corey underscore Hancock. So Corey spelled K H O R Y underscore Hancock. Um, and yeah, like uh, probably the website's the best way to go. You, you'll see the see the range of carbon methodologies there you can have a have a look and we're, we're partnered with um corporate carbon who have been in this industry for a long time they uh they help us do all the technical uh stuff and there's a whole team behind there that, that, that does that so um yeah you can you can have a look at all that and uh just um give me a call i'm happy to chat like we are now talk you through it for um, a consultation and um, all at no charge, of course. Just I love chatting about this. So just give me a call if anything else, and just to just to know uh, any questions that you you may have. Absolutely. Well, the link will be in the show notes. So if you want to look down below, you'll be able to see the link to the website there. Um, get in touch with Corey and the team and see how it may work out for your own scenario. But Corey, thank you very much for coming down and breaking down a few of the barriers and removing that fence, so people aren't on the left or the right. They're just getting some good substance around the area of carbon farming, regenerative practices that possibly every sort of farmer has been utilizing, but we're improving ourselves and actually measuring it now. Um, and how that plays out in the future is up to the farmer, that landowner. Uh, thanks for having me on, Jack, and uh, and definitely keep on doing what you do, mate. It's, uh, it's impressive. Absolutely. Cheers, mate. We'll catch you on further down the track. Thank you for tuning in to the Farms Advice Podcast. It is produced by Advert Your Eyes Digital, the agribusiness marketing specialist. Go to farmsadvice.com.au for more information on this episode and the others before and spread the Farms Advice. If you love this episode, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe as it helps other farmers find us too. But until then, next Tuesday, keep on farming. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Farms Advice podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country for Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 